0: Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed.
1: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine. erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
0: Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down
2: and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham.
0: Here to remind you that market value can be a very spooky thing it's episode 376 of the down and nerdy podcast i'm james with i'm really excited because i've got so many great guests on the show this week starting with the new series from sci-fi surreal estate gonna be joined by stars tim Rozon and sarah levy to talk about this very interesting show about real estate agents trying to sell the toughest houses on the market and that's just putting it mildly i'll also give me give you my first impressions of the first episode as well also going to be joined by the stars and the creative team behind power book three raising cane in the prequel series which is coming to stars this sunday i'm so so excited to get to share with you what the cast had to say about this upcoming series which is really really good by the way too also yeah you know i'm going to have a spoiler filled review of the loki season one finale so much went down and we can finally talk spoilers safely Our comic book reviews are back, some great nerd news to talk about. So things since things are so jam-packed, let's get right to it. Tim Rozon and Sarah Levy from Surreal Estate join me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: This is Tim Rozon from Wine Owner on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: When you're trying to sell your house and you've got bigger problems than not having granite countertops and only having one bathroom. I mean, what if you had ghosts in your house, right? That might be a problem, unless you had the Roman agency. Nearby, and that comes from Surreal Estate, a brand new series on Sci-Fi, which is now here. As a matter of fact, I got a chance to chat with the stars of the show, Tim Rozon and Sarah Levy, about the roles. Myself and some fellow journalists got to ask a couple questions. Here's what I wanted to know, starting with Tim. Tim, for you, I think that Luke Roman's right up there with one of my favorite characters that you've ever played. I mean, he's likable, but he's a complex dude. What's your favorite thing about him?
2: Pretty much that, you know, he's not who I think everybody's going to think he is for the first couple of episodes. I think the layers will start to come off and there'll be a sensitivity to him, (laughs) to be honest, a vulnerability to him that I really like, uh, that you don't see at all. I think with a lot of it is hidden by his bravado, which he uses to be a real estate agent. You know, I think he's honed that talent and skill over the years. But I think when we, when we start to see the real Luke there's a vulnerability to that I like a lot.
0: And Sarah, for you, one of my favorite things about this show is the dynamic between Susan and Luke. I, I really love the chemistry between you and Tim on the show. So how describe that dynamic for us a little bit. What what is What is something that really draws you to that?
3: I think just the fact that they're in it for the kind of greater good of the company, which is to sell houses. And we both know where our skills lie. And the fact that we kind of put our heads together and and our skills together to to be as professional as possible in you know getting the job done and selling these houses and I kind of liked that we both went in in this very like wonderfully platonic friendship true friendship where we both very much respect each other and and that made it really you know easy and fun to play also you know Tim is wonderful and lovely and the fact that we have have had a relationship outside a platonic relationship outside of this show. (laughs) I'll clarify that, you know, we've known each other for so long. So it was really nice to be able to bring that element into it as well.
0: And you're both hilarious. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thank you. So one of the other questions I thought was really, really good from one of the other journalists was what are your characters best and worst qualities? This was a toughie. Listen to what they had to say. I feel like his best and worst
2: qualities are so connected and they kind of make him a good real estate agent. You know, it's kind of, I guess it's, I'll I'll go back to this bravado thing. I think he needs to act a certain way when he's selling houses or when he's in full on sales pitch mode. And I think that's his worst quality to me, but also it's one of his strongest (laughs) uh, traits because he needs that to, to be successful. But I think the cool thing is we start to peel that stuff away uh, and see the cool stuff. And then we see that within the dynamic between Susan and and Luke. And I think it's within the comfort he feels with someone he respects as much for selling houses in that sense that he can also be his realist Luke. I don't think the other people at the agency uh, really see a version of Luke that Susan does. And I think that's because of the comfort he feels in the, the mutual respect they have for one another.
3: Yeah, I, I completely agree in that, you know, some of Susan's best qualities are her worst qualities, depending on, you know, the environment and the situation that she's in. But I mean, I think that, you know, she's her her professionalism, she's a people person, a workaholic. And though that works really, really well professionally, it doesn't necessarily work really well personally. So it's it's been finding her finding that balance and allowing herself to be vulnerable and letting people in on kind of the secrets that she keeps and why she, you know, puts her nose to the ground and, and just wants to, you know, close the deal and make that money. It's, it's interesting that, you know, just like Tim said, he hit the nail on the head in that, like the best qualities are so closely tied to the worst qualities. It just kind of depends on the situation.
0: I'll say this, I've gotten a chance to see the first few episodes of Surreal Estate. And if you've been complaining that there's nothing unique left on television, there's no unique ideas, Surreal Estate, and I'm not even kidding, might be one of the most unique shows that's come along in a long, long time. You look at it on the surface and you're thinking a real estate agency that tries to sell haunted houses, for lack of a better way of putting it, that's really simplifying it. Trust me, there's much more to it than that plus there's a lot of depth in these characters too especially when it comes to Tim and Sarah's characters is an interesting reveal about Sarah's character in the first episode actually as you'll find out and it just the layers continue to peel from there on out and there's also a continuing storyline with one particular house that's going to be a theme throughout the season plus there's there's just other houses they try to sell as well there's a great supporting cast I mean Adam Corson is really really good Maurice Dean Wint is very, very good as well, and that's, that's not where it stops. And not to mention Millie, Melanie Scrofano, who Tim, who Tim worked with on uh, Winona Earp, is going to direct a couple of episodes. She's even going to appear in one. So there's so much to love, I feel like, about Surreal Estate. It's one of those shows that I don't feel like it's been talked about enough up to this point, and is one of those times where you need to watch this show and you need to spread the word. Surreal Estate premieres tonight. That's a Friday at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on sci-fi and every Friday after that. I think you'll love the concept of this show. I think you'll love how quick-witted it is. I think you'll love how funny that it can be at times as well. And I just think you really love the character of Luke Roman in general because I certainly did. Now, maybe it's because I'm an unapologetic Tim Rozon fan. Might be because of that a little bit, but I'm telling you, there's something about this show and these characters that just there's a spark to the show. And there's a light in this show that I think is so unique that we don't really see enough on TV. So I'm really, really excited for you guys to check this one out. That's going to do it for my kind of quick review of the first episode of Surreal Estate from Sci-Fi, spoiler free. And again, thanks to Tim Rose on it, Sarah Levy, for joining me. Up next, of course, you know, I'm going to be talking about the season finale of Loki. We'll get into that next. Plenty of spoilers, too, so be aware. It's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
4: This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to
3: the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: After all the prosturing and pruning, how would it all end? That's right, the season finale, and I say that, and we'll get to that in a second as to why I'm not saying series finale, of Loki has aired on Disney+. Plus. A lot of spoilers to talk about from here on out, so just be aware of that. It's been out for a couple days now. I've given you a warning. I think it's safe to talk spoilers. and And let's just jump right in to the biggest one, right? Jonathan Majors' debuts not as Kang, but as he who remains. I mean, but let's just call it spade as spade, right? That we are talking about Kang here and he was just full of energy and just I, there's a quirkiness about him that I really really loved and played so well off of Loki and Sylvie, too by the way. And it, and it was one of those deals where, you know, he's like just like the TVA's been saying from the beginning. Like we know, I know what's going to happen. I know that how this is going to end. So you can either kind of take my deal or you can kill me. And a whole bunch of me that might not be so great are just going to be floating all over. And this timeline is going to go berserk. So what this leads to is, and, and whether you've been shipping it or not, you know, this, this led to a conflict between Sylvie and And Loki that I think really, and I'll get back to to Jonathan Majors and and the whole Kang thing here a little bit later, but I loved the conflict between Loki and Sylvie in this thing because, you know, they'd kind of fallen for each other. It was this unlikely pairing, right? And it led to the conflict of, you know, Loki believes he who remains and saying, you know, this might not be a good idea, killing this dude. And Sylvie is so locked on focused that – You know, these people have taken everything from me and the only way that I can exact my revenge and get satisfaction is by killing this guy. So they end up fighting each other and in that moment where you finally think they're going to be together, she kicks them through that portal, right? And I thought the best scene in this entire series and don't at me on this because I thought it just spoke volumes, okay? was when Loki is sitting there in the TVA by himself, and there's just this defeated, heartbroken look to him. And bravo to Tom Hiddleston for this, by the way. Because you look, and this was talked about ad nauseum when it came to Loki, right? Is that he's a survivor, but he's always a loser sort of thing, right? And this seemed like the ultimate loss for Loki, not only did he not get a throne not only did he not get the woman that he wanted to be with not only did he get a happy ending but he now sits alone and broken again and and at a loss once again it was just crushing for me to see that i thought it was just the quintessential scene of this entire series. And then fast forward to the fact that now, not even Mobius knows who he is at this point. Right? So now he's lost a, you know, for lack of a better term, a best friend or a confidant, whatever you want to call the relationship between Loki and Mobius. Now he's lost that too. So now he's got nothing. Now who was behind that? That's, you know, kind of a to be determined kind of thing. Is that he who remains slash Kang? Is it Sylvie? Who is responsible for what happens to Loki and and would it be considered a bad thing is this a way for him to possibly get a fresh start but you know Loki's not just gonna let this go right so I thought that was an amazing scene that happened in in in, in the series at the end there and, and again from from silver's perspective I love that that you had he who remains tells her you know grow up you know and and, and you know, almost like an it's not always about you sort of thing and you know maybe he was lying right maybe Sophie's right maybe he was lying but it turns out he wasn't lying right but you could understand why she would think that but at the same time much like you know loki in the past making it about her kind of has opened up a big big can of worms and open up the multiverse for us which you know for us as fans that's not the worst thing in the world right it, it, it kind of makes it more fun for us but at the same time it makes it more dangerous for everyone else involved in this universe now right and and the marvel cinematic universe as a whole and the fact that she's the one responsible for it now remember we thought that it was going to be wanda right when we were watching WandaVision, we thought it was going to be wanda that was responsible for unleashing this massive thing on on the on the world and it's not at all it turns out it was sylvie that was the one that was responsible for this. And you know, her end game is now her end game is now done, right? She, she, she killed the person that she set out to kill. But oftentimes you find out that your end game isn't exactly the end game because there was a lot more to it than you expected. Right. And, and th- that kind of an ending is rarely satisfying for that character. Right. That's very rarely a cathartic thing. So I thought that that was an interesting angle that was played there too. And we don't know where things settle for her right? There's this fine, There's a little bit of a finality there for her. And then she kind of looks around like, well, now what sort of thing? And she, I don't even think she realizes the gravity of what she's done, whether it be to he who remains or to Loki. So I think that her angle is an interesting one. And can I give a shout out to Miss Minutes too, by the way, and Tara Strong, the amazing job she did as the voice of Miss Minutes. How much of a little sneaky little thing was, was she, in this series right you know you think she's fun and innocent at first and it turns out that miss minutes has had her little animated hands and everything whether it be the whether it be the hour hand or the minute hand it's been in absolutely everything and i don't think that we've seen the last of miss minutes either quite frankly because i think that she might be a little bit more important than we realize as well it's almost like you think it's going to be a fun throwaway character but at the same time you find out that there's much more to Miss Minutes than that almost like the minion for Kang at a certain in a certain respect, right? And where the TVA goes from here too. Right now they they not only do they still exist, they the, the timekeepers you saw the statue were replaced now by by Kang. So what's the story there? And Mobius is now kind of the de facto head of the TVA. It seems like Right, because everybody else is either taken off or they are the, the the guards themselves that were left behind after B twenty kind of blows up the whole illusion of the TVA for the guards, right? Which was very, very cool too, by the way, which is another great scene. And just when you think, that's where it all ends, we find out in the credit scene that Loki's gonna return for a second season. So and I gotta say, for this whole series, there was not one episode where I went, eh? And this was and now granted only 6 episodes and I'm not saying if they had an extra couple that any of them would have been bad but I'm just I'm just saying that every episode brought it and brought something different to the table and actually more important than anything else made you want to be made you want to stay up to watch the next episode the following week so you could avoid spoilers right it was it was appointment viewing and that's not something that really happens a ton Anymore, whether it be on streaming or on broadcast television. So, this series was not only a home run in that respect, but the fact that this was the catalyst for what is now going to be going forward for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel Studios. Think how this affects Doctor, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Think about how this affects Spider Man No Way Home. Think about, think about how this affa- affects. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania this affects so many things now that it's 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 insane so it's a, the the fact that this series was trusted to be the catalyst for what's next for the Marvel Cinematic Universe tells you all you need to know about how seriously Marvel is taking this whole Disney Plus thing so i think for me neck and neck is to my favorite between WandaVision and Loki, but this puts Falcon and the Winter Soldier at a distant third for me. I'm sorry. And I didn't even dislike it. You know I enjoyed the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But just as good as Loki was every week and the way that when they introduced characters made them matter so much and the fact that, you know, you kind of left fans with nothing to complain about, right, because this was the theory, right, that it was going to be Kang all along instead of Agatha all along this time right? So this time it was Kang. You got exactly what you wanted and a major debut in a Marvel series. So you kind of left fans with no reason to go, oh, well, such and such didn't show up, or this didn't happen, or this should have happened. Everything that should have happened happened in this series, and then some. And now it also gives us a ton of other stuff to look forward to. So Loki not only ended up being one of the best Marvel series ever, but it also ended up being a big match lit for what's going to be going forward. And I can't wait to find out how that's going to turn out. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Loki, Loki Season 1 finale. Up next, going to talk to the cast and the creators and showrunners of Power Book 3, Raising Kanan, which is going to be premiering on Stars. Talk to them next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
5: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
2: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is writer Brandon
1: Easton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Sometimes you just got to go back and find out how you got the power. If you are a fan of the Starz series, Power, and some of those spinoffs, we finally got the prequel that I think fans have always wanted and that is Power Book 3 raising Kanan. So we get to find out how Kanan became who he ultimately was and find out that there's a queen pin behind it all. And I had a chance to talk to some so many members of this incredible cast and some of the creators and showrunner of the series as well. I actually want to start with the star himself, Makai Curtis. Here's what I got a chance to ask him about his role in the series. Makai, how you doing? I mean, the first couple episodes were really, really good, man. Kanan's a smart kid. He seems to have a lot of friends. He's got a good energy about him. What At this point in his life, what would you say drives him the most?
5: Yeah, what would I say drives Kanan at this age? Honestly, it's definitely his family. It's definitely his mother. You know, those are the two biggest things in his world. You know, inside of, inside of the stories, you know, it's a story about influence and environment and being on the south side of Jamaica Queens in kind of, you know, like the the most drug written part because his mother is a drug queenpin being his influence along with his uncle Marvin and his uncle Lulu, you know, those are the those are the kind of things you see him around and, uh, you know, the, the, the choices he has to make.
0: So one of the things I love, Makai, about these first couple episodes is Kanan's relationship with Jukebox. I mean, it's his cousin, but it's really like his sister, right? So mm. what it, what is that relationship like for you? How cool was that to play?
5: It was really cool, you know, especially getting to, you know, because that's the one relationship from the, as a fan of Power, that's the one relationship from, you know, Power that carries over any sort of, you know, polarity, I guess you could say. But yeah, it's been really cool getting to unpack that whole, that whole relationship and getting to dive even further in the you know stuff that was happening even before we were the age we are now on the show um there's a lot of you know Sasha's done a great job of building backstories and you know sitting down with us and and just brainstorming little stuff that will actually inform you know the the tone and the place that you're in with the character now it's it's been it's been really fun getting to uh, to to explore that relationship, especially in the place that it's in now, because again, you know, it's a totally different spot from where they were however many years in the future, the original power is. So yeah, you know, that's another one. I'm just really excited to explore the evolution of the relationship and, and, you know, how it
0: grows. Makai, a lot of teenagers like to think that they make their own decisions, right? Or that they can make their own decisions. Do you feel like Kanan kind of has that illusion of, for lack of a better word, power, or does he kind of know what's up in his family?
5: I feel like it's both of those, honestly. You know, there's there's the side of it that again knows that she is the head of it all and you know, she kind of is she she's the boss. She's the be all that ends all. And again, going back to it being the the family dynamic and you know, he wants he wants to get in to protect her and you know, do all of this stuff and because again, he thinks that's what's right with all of the people that are around him. So it it you know, it eventually, I'm sure with anything turns into, you know, you eventually get tired of hearing no so you you find your own way in type thing and that's kind of what happens here it's he knows that she's not going to do it the way he wants it done no matter I mean he's been spoiled his entire life but this is one thing she's not budging on and you know Kanan being a thinker being his mother's son being you know somebody who who actually is very smart not so much street smart just yet but who is actually intelligent you know he has ways to think out of a lot of situations and that's what you'll find him doing
0: <laughs> up next is the woman that was responsible for creating the character of canon and some of the others as well an executive producer courtney kemp who talked about what we can expect from some of those characters coming up in the season of power book three here's what i had a chance to ask her courtney so great to speak with you today we saw in the trailer when the show first kicked off it's the line i want to make sure i get this right you know how my story ends this is how it starts so how important was it to tell Kanan's early story and how it relates to his future?
6: Well, you know, a lot of our fans were asking for a prequel with Ghost and Tommy, which I thought was really not as interesting because you know both those characters live. So there wasn't a lot of story to tell there. But what I did think was interesting is that Kanan, who is five years older than Tommy and Ghost, does have a story that's very specific to this, what 50 calls the golden era of selling drugs and does have a story that we don't really know about. We know how he ended, but I, I like to think of him as like the monster with a heart of gold. And it's kind of nice to see how he ended up that way.
0: Everybody likes to think that they run the streets, right? Whether it be the law enforcement or whatever family might be going on. I know that this series is a lot about family, but how much are we also gonna say about the hierarchy, about what's going on and who actually runs these streets?
6: I think who runs the streets is a great question. My answer is not going to be one that's popular, but the reality is, is is that a higher power is always in control. So everybody's always jockeying for like, I I control this or I control that. And the corridors belong to God. They don't belong to unique or to rock. So it's really interesting to see that go back and forth. Obviously the cops are in the mix, but if, we could control other people and get them to do what we could do, then like, that would be amazing, right? The closest icon is going interior, Rock's house, Rock says this, right? And I don't (laughs) even do that, that's really Sasha. So at the end of the day, it's like, you know, people are trying to be in control. That's what I love about power is that it's an illusion. None of us have any.
0: So speaking of who runs the streets, is it Rock and her family? Let's talk to the family members themselves. You've got London Brown who plays Marvin, you've got Malcolm Mays, who plays Lulu, and Haley Kilgore who plays Jukebox. Let's find out what they had to say about where they all stand in the family. Now, everybody, all obviously this is a prequel series, so I think this is the best place to start. How would you describe your characters? place within this family dynamic? Because I feel like everybody's got a unique role there.
4: I always say that Jukebox is the eyes and ears of the family. She's she's always working from the outside in, and she's always coming in with the correct information (laughs) the first time. So, yeah, I just say she's the eyes and ears of the family.
5: I am upper management. I keep everybody in line. I'm clean up. I'm sanitation. That's my job. He fucks up, I clean it up. They get out of line, I go get them. That's my job. (laughs) That's all I do. I love it. think mean, for me, I'm a little bit of the muscle of the group. I have a hard time following directions, but ultimately, I'm just there to have everyone's back. And, and Lulu's character is there to clean up the back <laughs> that I do.
0: <laughs> and literally, because you're always eating too. So there's that. <laughs> Boom. All right, Haley, this one's for you. And I'm going to try and word this just right because we're trying not to spoil anything here. But we get a pretty big reveal about Jukebox in the first episode about her personal life. So again, without spoiling anything, how much do you think this is going to complicate her story this season, especially given the fact that we're, we're in the early nineties here. We're not here today.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you, I think you kind of answered the question. It's that it's, it's the nineties and it it's, it is a very tough situation. I don't think it's impossible. I think that there is always a way to navigate. It's just like, that's the cool part about her being a teenager right is as teenagers you're just trying to figure everything out and figure out where you belong in the world where you're going where you want to go so i think as much as it's a shocker and it's revealed i think she she'll figure it out
0: all righty really quickly how consciously where are your characters of how much influence they actually have over canon at such a young age and actually haley for you as well even though you're around the same age
4: I mean jukebox will boss Kanan around whenever she gets the opportunity, so
0: yeah
5: i unless I guess for me, I'm kind of hyper aware of how much influence we have over Kanan simply because I think I was his first prototype with his mother. she's the older sister, and I was the baby of the of our trio and of our family before Kanan was born and before of course jukebox was born so I'm hyper aware, which is why I take such an interest in Haley and de facto later on in Kanan, simply because I'm like, I know how I turned out, I know how Marvin turned out, and I know that that I don't want that for them. So I think me moving into a different arena is a display of how aware I am of how this we need a better route for for the family. So I think Lulu's probably the most aware of how these things are gonna turn out in the end outside of the audience who's already watched. I, I think Marvin is the total opposite of Lulu in that regard where he's not looking so much into Kanan's future, but he, in fact, like introduces Kane to a lot of different things that may not be quite the best direction for his for future.
0: Speaking of that family, how could I not talk to the wonderful Bettina Miller who plays Rock on the show? And then there's Omar Epps who plays Detective Howard on the show. So you know there's going to be some friction there. Here's when I get a chance to ask them. Patina, doing? Omar, thanks so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. I'm going to start with you, Patina, because Rock clearly loves her son. She loves her family, even though they can be knuckleheads sometimes. How much does that bond help drive the family's success, but also their ability to survive?
7: Obviously, I think it helps drive the family's success for sure. Rock is the matriarch of her family. She's the sole breadwinner for her family. She loves them more than anything. Family first before anything for her, but also, you know, her son is her Achilles heel as well. And that starts to become a problem because her two worlds that she's been able to sort of keep separate up until this point have been able to exist and she's been able to go between the two and be successful at it. And so now that Kanan has put himself into a situation to where he is now curious about what his mother does and it's it presents a problem, it's more dangerous to have to think about people coming after her. And now she has to think about someone possibly coming after her son and you know the lengths that she will go to to keep him protected and to keep her family safe is pretty major. So, you know, rock. Rock is dealing with a lot
0: of stuff. I asked Courtney about this earlier. I'm really curious to get both of your perspectives on this because I feel like, again, this show is about family, but it's also about like who runs the streets. So from both of your characters' perspectives, do they feel like maybe they run the streets or do they feel like they have to run the streets in their situation?
7: It's not she has to run the street, she's running the street. You know, Rock has had these, uh, period, right? Uh, she's She's been in two really long relationships with hustlers, with these men put up on these, these pedestals, and she's sort of been the mastermind in behind the scenes, just waiting for her own opportunity. So she knows the game. She already knows what it is, and there isn't anything that like she hasn't seen at this point. So she's running the game because it's what she wants. It's not cause she has to do it. I mean, I think if we're in a different time in a different place, Rock will be a CEO of another, of a company. She's just very smart. She's very savvy and she's using all of the gifts that she's, she possesses to get it.
1: Yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, which is great. What Patina just said, it, because Howard, he, he, he knows he runs the streets because he really runs the streets. He's got the, the, the badge, in the, you know, to go with the gun. You know, so he's, he's looking at it from a different perspective. And also, he comes from a different era. Even though the show takes place in the 90s, he's coming from two generations before. So as things are changing in terms of, like, culturally, things are changing, he's experiencing that in real time as the audience is watching. But that's why he's such a brute. Uh, he's kind of barbaric and archaic in his way of thought purposefully because that's all he knows but he runs the streets and so he's he's looking at rock like you know she thinks she's gaining a foothold somewhere this that and the other but at the end of the day you know he could throw her in the slammer anytime he chooses so it's that kind of cat and mouse you know because it's 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 about not to be cliche but who has the power right (laughs) like and what is power, truly.
0: I think a good way to wrap things up is to talk to the creator of this series of Power Book 3, Raising Canon, Sasha Penn, who also happens to be the showrunner. He's been with the Power series from the very beginning, so getting his insight into this show, really, really important. Here's what I had a chance to ask him. Sasha really loved the first couple of episodes of Book 3 here, and one thing that I really noticed as I was watching it, you know, a mother always wants what's best for her son. Right. But I feel like that is very much mutual between Raquel and Canon. So can you talk about is, do you feel like it's more mutual with them than it would be in say a normal, um, mother-son relationship?
8: I mean, listen, I can't speak to every mother-son relationship. I can tell you as it relates to these two characters? Yes. They're, you know, they, when you're a single mom, raising a kid on your own, you know, there's, there's, there's a natural connection there. That's very, very intense. You know, and I, you know, I, I was, my parents were divorced and, and so, yeah, you, you, as a kid, of course, you, this is your caregiver. This is the person you look to to keep you safe, to protect you. And as a parent, your kids are your world. I don't know that it's an extraordinary relationship in that way. And in fact, I think one of the things that works about the series is that their relationship feels real. It feels like it, it, it feels like it, it. It will resonate for parents and kids. I and mean, I don't know if you have kids, but I do, and I can I tell do, you, yeah. yeah. So you know, I mean, it, it. It. This is this is the journey we all take when you have kids. And yeah, so I think it's th- their relationship to me feels very grounded, and a lot of that has to do, by the way, with the brilliant performances of these two actors.
0: Sasha, one of the things I love is that you're taking us back to the early '90s, which is a time I remember quite well in this series, but how did you want to capture the vibe of the time and of the setting of the show as well, but not going too nostalgia heavy? Cause I feel like you definitely don't do that. And I like that.
8: Yeah. Well, thank you. First off, you know, I was in New York, uh, right around this time. I was actually, I was in, I was, uh, in another career. I was working at Harlem hospital. I was, I was helping to, I was working at this community-based health organization in, in Harlem. So I very much remember New York at that time. And, and it was this interesting moment, right? Which is Hip hop culture was really starting to emerge in in a significant way. You know, you really felt it, and you felt it in New York every day, and it was exciting. You know, and it was it was dynamic, and you felt like you were in in some respects like in in the center of the in the center of the universe. And so that's what we really. But there was also a grittiness to the city, by the way. It was not There, there was a lot going on. And so that's what we really tried to capture through the music. And the, cause again, the music is a very visceral thing. You know, it's like you hear these songs and it brings you right back, or at least it does me. I was also conscious of the nineties, obviously. So it brings you right back as do the hairstyles and the clothes and all the rest of that, all of that stuff, you know, that stuff is really a character in the series to your point James like that, that, that it really it's, it's so critical to the story we're telling because keep in mind also this is pre cell phones, right? Which, I mean, Rock has a cell phone, but only like, you know, only like five people had cell phones, right? And so that's also by the way, as a writer, that's the best. Cause when you cell phones, cell phones changed the game in writing. You know, when it was that easy to when it became that easy to make a phone call, all of a sudden all these plot twists that we've been working for the last hundred years went out the window. So not having cell phones is also a huge change you know or difference anyway yeah so the period of it all is really really important and to your, and again to your point like we do straddle that line trying not to make it feel
0: too nostalgic
8: or corny you know just making it feel
0: organic and real you brought up goodfellas earlier sasha and i think that, that that's a really good example because what we have is in in this show in particular is we have a queen pin on one side and a king pin on the other and i love that you have those like uneasy meetings between the two of them. So talk about crafting those scenes and how it really drives that part of the story going forward. Cause I thought that was, especially in the first episode, that was really fun.
8: Yeah, I mean, listen, again, I give all the credit to the actors, you know? I mean, it's, it's you have Patina Miller and Joey Badass going toe to toe. You know, the, the scenes as they existed on the page were good. You know, I think what those actors did with those scenes made them great, you know? But yeah, I mean, I think the best, we're talking about Goodfellas or The Godfather or any, or Power, any sort of great crime thriller, Heat, for example, like, you know, you think of that iconic scene in Heat with De Niro and Pacino, you know, first time on screen together going to, you know, like, that's what we aim for, right? Like, it's very hard to even touch that, but that's what we aim for. And and the only way that you can get there is if you have created characters that people frankly give a shit about. You know, the characters that, that like, you're on you're, you're with them. You understand them. You understand their motivations. You understand the stakes for them. When you have those two, if you've done that successfully, it's like an amazing prize fight, right? It's like, it's like Mike Tyson going against Michael Spinks, right? Which is like, you have these two heavyweights going toe to -to toe and you don't know how it's going to turn out, right? That's, that's what we aim for. And when we can, when we can get near that, you know, that's when
0: we've won. And that's just one of the many great things about this Power Book 3 Raising Canaan series is that not only does it have that, like Sasha said, big fight feel, it has all of these deep character moments that get mixed in between. So it's not just about this power struggle, for lack of a better term, like Omar said, but it's also about these family aspects and these kids that are growing in to their own at the same time and the family dynamics that are involved there as well. There's so much to love about Power Book 3, Raising Cannon. I think you'll really enjoy it. You can actually enjoy this series without having watched any of the other Power Series 2, by the way, so you you shouldn't feel lost or anything if you just want to jump into Power Book 3, Raising Cannon, which will be airing every Sunday, premiering this Sunday night on Stars. Again, thanks to the wonderful cast of Power Book 3, Raising Cannon, and the creators as well for joining me to chat about the show this week. Up next, hey, let's get back into some comics. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy podcast. This is writer Eric Burnham, and you're listening to the Down
2: and Nerdy Podcast.
0: There's a lot of heart in these pages this week, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and I want to start with an earlier view of MOM Mother of Madness, number one, from Image Comics. Yep, that's the book written by Amelia Clark, also joined by Isabel Richardson and Marguerite Bennett, writing this one as well, and Lila Leitz on the art. Now, this follows a woman named Maya, who's a single mother, with some really Just crazy powers. I mean, not just one power, but a bunch of them rolled into one. Makes her very, very unique character, to say the least. And her personality is off the charts, like Deadpool-level personality, too. She really had a hard life growing up, though. Her powers seem to kind of come from one very bad day and something that happened in the aftermath of that. Now, she tries to make the best life for her son. She's navigating a job in one of the most toxically chauvinistic companies I've ever even seen on a page or in real life, ever. It's just like every bad thing rolled in to one place, and so she's got to deal with that. And she also has to deal with the fact that she can't control her powers just yet either. Now, she also seems to stumble upon, and this isn't a spoiler, by the way, she stumbles upon a human trafficking operation that kind of makes her realize that her powers might be... Her true destiny, and that is right there in the description of the book. So that's not a huge spoiler, and I won't ruin anything that happens and what she finds out. But I will say this: it, it's definitely one of those. It's definitely kind of a be comfortable in your own skin type of story. When it comes to Maya, right? I mean, there's chance that at some point in your life you felt different and you were shunned by that, or, or for that, or you were, you know, criticized, or just were just playing on panel picked on for that right and maya's had to deal with that her entire life and continues to deal with that as an adult and maybe you too too and that kind of makes her a very relatable character i mean we don't have the powers that she does but the way the way that she is seen by the world and how she reflects that into herself and her insecurities is a really interesting aspect of this story Now, this book does break the fourth wall a lot. I mean, it's just one big fourth wall break, and they're very outward about it and not ashamed of it either. It's almost like the narration comes to life, right? And she jumps out of each scene to kind of tell you what's going on herself. It's almost like how in Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn, how we had Harley telling the story in the background, but it would be like if Harley stopped in the middle of a scene and told us what was going on. That's kind of what we got going on here. And the art's just as wild as the story is too, by the way. And each page kind of had you wondering what comes next. Not just the end of this issue. Every freaking page made you have no idea what was going to be happening on the next one. And that is not something that's very common of any book. So, I mean, this is definitely a, a story that'll keep you on your toes. You'll definitely get a laugh or two. There, there's a lot of backstory in this issue. And it's very necessary to kind of give you an idea of who Maya is and how she got to where she is, not just mentally, but powers-wise, and who has her back and who doesn't. So it sets the stage for something that's going to be a really big story in this first arc, which is only three issues, by the way, and you get your hands on this one on July 21st. If you're looking for something really unique to add to your pull and a very unique character, then Emma, a mother of madness, number one, definitely fits that bill from Image Comics. Now, here's something that's kind of like a comfy old, it's like the comfy pair of shoes that you have are or, or a nice, just warm, fuzzy blanket to curl up in. And I, I couldn't wait to read Canto 3, Lionhearted, number one, because that, that's what it is for me. David Brewer writing this one, of course, Drew Zucker back on the art, Vittorio Astone on the colors, and, and World Design doing the letters. Now, if you're familiar with the Canto story, you kind of know what's going on, but this book starts off with the search for the slavers. And it kind of takes a really interesting turn because it seems like the Shrouded Man is also looking for them too. And maybe a couple of minor spoilers during this review, so just a heads up on that. So it's almost like a race for a numbers game with Kanto and Allura. Alora. kind of feel like they need more to be able to win this battle against the Shrouded Man. And, you know, why face the Shrouded Man unless you, unless you feel like you, you have the weapon... Now you need the numbers. So it's almost like a Lord of the Rings ask where you if you're going to storm the gates, you better have the numbers to be able to do it. Right. Except they're not trying to return anything. They're not trying to throw the ring into the fire. They're trying to win their ultimate freedom for lack of a better term. They've freed themselves from the slavers. Now what's left is the Shrouded Man. And there's a little bit of revenge mixed up in there as well. But Falco and Ricka, R- Rika, excuse me, have another plan. But it's a risky, risky plan, and I won't ruin what that is. So what we have here kind of is, you know, what's going to win out? Will loyalty win or will kind of hubris lead to a very, what could be anyway, a very costly decision and something that, ha- that could have huge ramifications on Kanto going forward? Because you see that the that, that, that Canto for lack of a better way of putting it, Kanto's heart is still very heavy over the loss of his beloved, right? And the fact that he's still locked up in this battle with the Shrouded Man. And you know that Canto wouldn't be looking forward to joining up with the slavers either. But it's almost like, a you do what you got to do in order to reach your ultimate goal, right? But this story never gets old for me. Neither does this art. Every time I read a Canto book, I'm reminded of just how brilliant these characters are and the world that was built here from the beginning of the first issue. I'm just fully invested in what this ultimate conclusion is going to be. And I'm definitely on edge based on the last two pages of this book. So if you're already a Canto fan, make sure you're picking up Canto 3, Lionhearted number one from IDW. And make sure you're catching up on the story too, by the way, because this is a book you should have been reading from the beginning. Get the trades, get caught up and read some of the other stories as well, because Canto is definitely a can't-miss story that you're going to want to check out. That's going to do over what we're reading up next. Going to jump right into nerd news and some big news from The Walking Dead world. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
8: Hey, this is Mark Paul Gossler from The Passage on Fox, and
1: you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: The beginning of the end is near. It is time for nerd news, and I say this because there was some Walking Dead news this week and the final season trilogy is going to begin on August the 22nd. We found that out when AMC released the final season trilogy trailer. Now it is going to actually going to start a week early on AMC plus So, if you're an AMC plus subscriber, you can actually start watching on August the 15th. So maybe that's incentive for you. Maybe it's not now. If you look at this trailer, there was a lot of imagery from past seasons and things like that. You know, trying to give you the warm and fuzzies. If as warm and fuzzies you can get about Walking Dead, about stuff that you loved from past seasons. And then fast forward into what is going to be this upcoming season or the beginning of the end, as I like to call it. Now, the theme for this trailer definitely seemed to be togetherness. And it seems like banded together not just against the walkers themselves and, you know, for survival... But against the Whisperers as well, because it seems like there's a final battle coming there for sure. Now, how that's going to turn out and who's going to end up aligning where, I think, is one of the interesting things to think about with this. But, I mean, how hyped did you get when you actually saw this trailer? I know that this isn't the be-all, end-all of anything, but I was actually kind of surprised that the trailer didn't have more views On YouTube than it did at the last time I checked it. Now, granted, this was yesterday, was like it was at like four or five thousand views or something like that. Usually, these huge trailers get like millions of views right off the bat. This one just didn't. I don't know if that's a sign that the hype is kind of died down for The Walking Dead or what's going on. I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm just a little bit surprised. It's not like it wasn't released on social media and stuff too. And I'm not going to spend time adding up. All the views and everything. I think the hype is real for this. I think the fans are really excited to find out how this is all going to end. But remember, the final two parts of this final season aren't even airing until 2022. So the finality isn't quite there yet. And that might have a little something to do with it. But the beginning of the end is certainly beginning. The other piece of Walking Dead news that happened this week is AMC and Image Comics and Skybound announced that the Walking Dead Universe art book is going to be coming On September 29th, that's where it starts at Comic Book Shops a week later at wherever books are sold. And it's going to be artist Brian Rude. And this is actually the first time, if you look at the wrapped cover arts, the first time the characters from all three shows, that means The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, and The Walking Dead World Beyond, are all depicted on one piece of art on this wraparound cover. Now, on the inside, you can have 50 character renditions from the shows and also character renditions of The Walkers as well. This feels like one of those things that's perfectly timed out to be released at this particular point. And if you're a fan, like a diehard fan, this is one of those things you kind of have to have, don't you? This is one of those things too that I think would look really great on the shelf, especially if you if you love art books anyway. And one of those things that you would definitely want to get signed. Want now the conventions have started back up, if you're ever in a, in, in a fortunate position to get Brian Rude to sign this. Or, you know, if you could meet cast members and get them each to sign, you know, the pages that they're on or something like that. like that, I think that would be really cool. That, as a collector for me, would be something I would really, really love to do. Because I've got a DC encyclopedia and a Marvel encyclopedia at home. And I actually get artists to sign those things and stuff like that when I'm not busy working these conventions. I actually, like, to, you know, try and be a fan on occasion. So I'll get them to sign pages of their art and things like that. And I'll get writers to sign it as well. So I think this is one of those things that would be really cool to have in your Walking Dead collection. More trailers that came out this week. Titan Season 3 full trailer was released by HBO Max. Of course, that series begins on August the 12th. And we get a much better idea of what's going on here. Batman retires. That's the big news of this trailer is that Bruce Wayne is retiring and he tries to pass the mantle to Dick Grayson but it looks like Jason Todd Red Hood has other plans and the Red Hood is going to try and rule over Gotham and that seems to be a point of contention here because you see of course Red Hood battling a couple of the Titans in this trailer right and then you see Barbara Gordon who makes her a pretty big appearance in this trailer and she's hunting down Red Hood so it looks like a lot of this season is going to be revolving around Red Hood. Not necessarily Scarecrow, although Scarecrow seems to be like a consultant now for the GCPD. And that's going to be interesting. But it also feels like there's some interesting tension between Barbara and Dick, doesn't there? If you've seen the trailer, I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out because it seems like their relationship's a little uneasy in this trailer. So I'm interested to see what kind of backstory we're going to get on that. But I mean, there's a ton of action in this as well, I love the Connor Kent Red Hood scene in this trailer. I think that that's really, really interesting. And just like Starfire says, you know where I'm from, when you mess with family, you mess with all of us. So the Titans going to band together against Red Hood and whatever else they might be facing. This season looks insane in this trailer, doesn't it? I can't wait to see where this thing is going. Another interesting trailer that came out this week was from Netflix for a series called Hit and Run, And it's basically another one of these revenge action style thrillers that we've got going on where a man's wife is run down for what seems like, to him at least, anyway, no reason, in an accident in Tel Aviv. And as he goes to kind of search for her killers in the United States, of course, that's where the killers fled to, he starts to sort of find out that, you know, maybe there are some truths that were kept from him by his wife and trying to understand what's going on there. And But, by the way, he's investigating this with an ex-lover, which I think is a very interesting twist of this whole story. And it stars Lior Le- Raz, who you might be familiar with from the next Netflix series, Fauda, or may- maybe not. Or he was also in Six Underground, too, by the way. And it just looks like one of those, you know, man-with-a-particular-set-of-skills type of series. And to me, it- it's... If you're if this genre is in your wheelhouse, then this seems like something that you're definitely going to want to check out. It's in my wheelhouse. I'm interested in seeing what's going on here. I'm in it for the action and to see just how twisty this story is going to be. So, you know, am I looking for a hugely deep story here? No, I'm just looking. I'm just in it for the action and whatever crazy twists might be coming. And August 6th is the day that you could see Hit and Run on Netflix. So I just think it's going to be a fun, intense story. And, and and just a fun watch so I'm that's why I'm looking forward to it speaking of fun we have the new Pixar movie that has been revealed by Disney it's going to be called Turning Red and it's basically if you when you watch the trailer it follows a a little girl named Miley I say little girl it's a teenager but to me you know little girl 13 is little okay and when she gets too excited she turns into a giant red panda now Miley is a very excitable young lady so this kind of seems to happen a lot and Did I mention she's got a little bit of a helicopter parent who's going to be played by Sandra Oh, so, you know, she has to deal with, you know, being at school, being a teenager and her mom like helicoptering outside of the window of her school and all of her classmates finding out nightmare if you're a kid, right? Imagine if that happened to you while you were in school. I don't think you'd be too thrilled. So, and, and by the way, Miley actually voiced by a newcomer, Rosalie Chiang. So, I mean, again, this is another one that just looks, looks fun. Looks different, and you know, how how is Miley going to deal and and her mom going to deal with the fact because her mom sees her turn into this thing, right? So it's going to be interesting to see exactly how this plays out and how fun this is going to be and how deep the story is going to be because there's a lot of depth to Pixar movies, right? It's not just about a fun story, it's not just about these funny moments. There's always a message in a Pixar movie, and I'm very curious to see what the message is going to be in this one. And it just happens to have an Academy winning award-winning director in Dome, she, so that doesn't hurt your cause either. And you could see this starting March the 11th. Now remember the last couple of Pixar movies haven't been in theaters. So it'll be interesting to see if this one is in theaters or not. Wasn't necessarily specified, but I'm guessing that this thing is probably in theaters. Really quickly, I want to look at the Emmy nominations. Normally, I don't do this, but I think there was some interesting news to come out of this. And namely, the fact that The Boys, The Mandalorian, WandaVision, and Cobra Kai, by the way, all got nominations for in big categories. I mean, you've got The Boys, Mandalorian being nominated in the Best Drama category. You've got WandaVision in the Best Limited Series, Mini Series category. And Cobra Kai, for some reason, in comedy. I mean, yeah, it's funny. But I don't understand how you could look at Cobra Kai and classify it as a comedy. Am I wrong? It just seems a little odd. But that's not the oddest thing that happened. Congratulations to them, by the way. I'd love to see The Mandalorian or The Boys win in the Best Drama category, but I, I just don't see it happening. I think the nominations are a good step in the right direction, but I don't know. I actually think that division has a good chance in a few categories. Actually, I mean, you could definitely see Elizabeth Olsen take one home. Paul Bettany, you could see him take one home as well. You could see the show winning in that category, too, by the way. So I'm I'm curious to see if, the, if this show has a chance. But the most baffling thing was the guest star nomination for Don Cheadle for The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Not because I don't like Don Cheadle, by the way, but he was literally in the show for 90 plus seconds. And gets nominated. And first of all, I you know there's been a lot of reaction to this on social media, myself included. And let's just get thing one one thing clear. It's not Don Cheadle's fault that he got nominated for this. Okay, you can be mad at Don Cheadle for this. Obviously, he's gonna accept the nomination. Why wouldn't you? It's it's weird. He doesn't get it either. But yet here we are. And will he win it? Probably not. But still, it's, it's a little weird that he was nominated for 98 seconds, especially when the biggest smack in the face if you want to get upset about something, and that's the fact that Carl Lumbly, who was fantastic in a guest role in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, maybe one of the best things about that show was his storyline, right, and in his, in his portrayal, and doesn't get it over Don Cheadle. That's the thing that I think that I would be upset about. And I think that that's a legit, legitimate gripe from fans is that, okay, so the Emmys clearly went to nominate the name, not the better performance. Because you can't tell me that in 90-plus seconds, Don Cheadle was better than Carl Lumley in that, in, that, in that series. You can't. It's just not possible. And I, and I say this to somebody who loves Don Cheadle. I'm a big fan of almost anything he's been in in his career. But over Carl Lumley, in this particular case... I think that's kind of a smack in the face and I don't know what the Emmys, the nomination folks were watching. You do have to watch these shows to vote on this kind of stuff, right? And put these nominations up because I'm curious at this point. Really quickly, there was actually a couple pieces of news on something's killing the children as well. Of course, you know, the Boom Studios comic from James Tynan and Werther Della Edera. So, and I'm sure I butchered your name, Werther. I apologize for that. But this This book is actually going to be adapted by Netflix. It's actually going to be co-written and produced by Trevor Macy and Mike Flanagan, who worked on The The Haunting of Hill House and Dr. Sleep. So, I mean, you get a legit team behind this thing, and you get to tell Erica Slaughter's story a little bit more, right, and find out why these... It'll be interesting to see exactly how closely they adapt it, to the comic right because you know kids go missing some of them come back and of course the stories they tell when they come back are less than thrilling or less than rosy you know it's it's kind of terrifying so now we and i'm not going to spoil anything beyond that i'm not going to i'm not going to just dive into all the issues of this of this comic because i don't want to ruin it for you from when the series is coming up. but this is one of those things that could really be a hit for netflix you know there are certain comic adaptations where you look at it and you go that makes perfect sense for where it is netflix is the perfect home for an adaptation of something is killing the children based on what i've seen from netflix so far i wouldn't want to see this done anywhere else so if anything i think this adaptation is in really good hands and i'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with it we also find out the same week by the way Oh, that was courtesy of the Hollywood Reporter that first broke that news. But Boom Studios also announced this week that there's going to be a spin off comic from Something is Killed, Killing the Children called House of Slaughter. And this is going to be a little bit of a prequel, too, by the way. I'll get to that in a second. We've got the same team involved in this that created Something is Killing the Children. We're also going to add co-writer Tate Bromball and Chris Sheehan on art as well joining the original creative team so you know all hands on deck for this one and this is actually going to tell Aaron Slaughter's story before the events of this story of course you know he's Eric's handler so we'll find out exactly how you know you know this monster killer has kind of got his start and the story actually follows the training in the house of Slaughter and the fact that he falls for a boy who will become his competitor read into that what you will. The art already looks stunning. If you see the page, if you've seen the pages that were already released and the cover art is absolutely amazing. Gonna have to wait until October for this one. No release date yet, by the way, for the Netflix adaptation, but you know, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. And once I know, you'll know. And that's the bottom line for that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guests this week, Sarah Levy and Tim Roson. Make sure you're watching surreal estate on sci-fi every friday and then how about power book three raising canaan the amazing cast and creators creators of that series that one starts on sunday on stars already renewed for a second season two by the way so feel free, feel free to definitely get in this one because it's going to be sticking around follow along with us on social media at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and instagram and at down and nerdy on facebook subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow along on our website as well, down in nerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.
2: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the nameless god,